With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, why the Almond Alliance is hosting four listening sessions throughout California, and how an Asian citrus sowed discovery opens additional research opportunities. But we start today with Brian German. West Region sales agronomist for AgroLiquid Abe Isaac joins us today to talk about how growers can address sodium burn in their orchards. Once you see a sodium burn in a plant, it's too late. The damage is done. Crop yield has been reduced. Growth has been inhibited. You can do things to try to get that plant going again, but it's difficult. And the best way to do that is prevention, obviously. And so one of the first things you got to do is test your irrigation water. And I would also, when I say test your irrigation water, not just the pump water, but also if you're getting surface water. We always think of our uh, irrigation water coming off the canal as being, oh, this is wonderful, pure-driven snow water, and it's in great shape, it's a neutral pH and everything else. And a lot of times it's far from that. You can have uh, pHs up in, in, the, in the high sevens with some high bicarbonates in that water as well. So you got to test that irrigation water for high sodium and make sure you're keeping an eye on that bicarbonate level and that's in there, calcium bicarbonates. That is like a plaque in your arteries. Uh, you don't realize it's there until it's too late and it just stops everything and slows the flow of sap up and down that tree. So when you have that, sodium in the soil is very close to what you have as potassium is. And because of that, that tree, as long as it's cool, less than 85 degrees, you have low humidity, the tree will respirate, do what it needs to. But as soon as that temperature goes up, like with the temperature that we have here in the Central Valley, that plant will go, I need potassium. If the numbers in that plant for potassium are low, it has easy availability of that sodium in the soil, it'll grab that sodium and pull that up. And that's when you start seeing that burn, those leaves, that fringe burn. So if you have that sodium issue, you've got to keep those levels in the plant up. Sodium is uh, the Gatorade of plant life. So it moves up and down, takes a lot of things, a lot of other nutrients with it. It regulates the stomata, keeps the plant open so that it can cool itself and just keeps on doing that. The best way in the soil to deal with sodium is make sure that your calcium levels are good. Even if you've got a soil that is high in calcium, 75 to 80%, maybe even more, you could put down a soluble calcium to help displace that sodium, and that's just cation exchange. And when you put calcium down, it's a double-charged cation. It goes down into that soil, hits the clay particle, displaces that sodium, puts that sodium in solution, and then that rainwater that we're getting right now is a great clean uh, source of water to leach that out of the red zone. And uh, you can really do a good job of it that way. And so now putting calcium on now is a great time to do it because of that. It, if you have a good liquid calcium, you can run that through your drip system or fan jets and it, and it works very well. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. And if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour and it is available on Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. 
For today's National Spotlight, we go back to the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention. Hi, I'm Jennifer Herr. I'm from Fulton County, Ohio, Northwest Ohio, Fulton County Farm Bureau. So you are here at the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention at your booth and you're giving out some salsa, which I have to say, being a person from California myself, I was a little bit surprised to see salsa from Ohio, but tell me a little bit about it. So my husband and my family and I, we uh, farm Triple H Farms is our name of our farm and we are a 120 acre tomato crop and also a 3,000 acre grain, beans, wheat crop farm. And this year with the Farm Bureau, OSU Extension, and our Fulton County Soil and Water Board, we hosted an event breakfast on the farm. So it was to promote the agriculture awareness of the food, farm to food to table, and what happens to your food. We had 17 educational stations. We had over 3,000 people attend the event. It was all free. We had sponsorships that provided it. And it was a self-guided farm tour after breakfast, of course, where they walked through the farm and they learned about the green, greenhouse production on the tomatoes. We had all the equipment out there. We had cattle um, for our beef production. We have a small cow-calf beef operation. So we had that out there and with the freezer meat out there, they had manure management. Um, John Deere was there with all the equipment so they could enjoy that. We also had the soil and water which educated on our water conservation practices and how we protect our Lake Erie from the algae bloom from that because we use our creek ditch in the back for water source into our pond and the pond water goes to the greenhouses. So you, like, it was start to finish all about everything that's going into your farm and your production. Yes, everything about egg production, egg awareness, to bring that to the people to know that, you know, we as farmers, agriculture, are producing safe foods. We are doing our best to put it out there from our farm to the grocery stores to your table. So how important is it to you that consumers understand um, everything that you're doing and, and how you're doing it? I think it's highly important to educate, and education is the key to, to success on anything, um, re regardless of the topic. But with this day and age of where, how safe is our food, where is it coming from, it's the hands-on experience to allow to open up your farm, to allow people to come in to see that this is what it is. This is what it entails to raise tomatoes, to get it from the greenhouse, from a seed, to a plant, to out to the farm, into the, the canning company, to the can, to the grocery store. For other farmers who are listening, do you have um, advice that you would give them or what would you say to them if they're thinking about maybe opening up their farm to help people in their communities understand? The Breakfast on the Farm event is an absolute go and I encourage everyone to, you know, come on out to our booth. We're booth what? I don't we're the Fulton County Farm Bureau booth and over by C, but um, no, it is a great educational event. And, you know, contact your farm bureaus, get your sponsors behind you, your extension office, your uh, water boards um, to, to promote it because that, that is what is important to allow people to know what agriculture is, what we are doing to sustain America and feed America. Kind of a random uh, business type question here, but did you need to have any extra insurance to bring all of those people onto your farm? That's a great question. Um, Farm Bureau did. That's why we have Farm Bureau on our backboards. That's why we're members of the Farm Bureau. Um, they came to us with this project. This is the third one in our county this year. Not this year. They have it every four years. Sorry. And um, yes, yeah, so they were the insurance carriers. However, we did have our nationwide insurance too. Um, you know, just in case, because you know, it is on your, your farm. It could be a liability. You're opening up to um, general population and, and everyone. So, but we, we went without any incidences. We had, like I said, a, a phenomenal outpour of support from local businesses everyone else in our community above and beyond our Detroit Toledo Ohio um, came out and the people were just amazed at 
what they learned that day on where their food comes from, the you know where their meat comes from, and we and we're just tomato farmers, you know, and there's so much more above and beyond that. Uh, any final thing that anything uh, that you would like for our listeners to know, or anything that we haven't talked about that you think they should know? I just re- I really encourage every county to look into it. Whether it doesn't have to be the big scale, you know, start small scale with your farm tours. Do a a day of, of six farms or something, you know. And but if you can combine with a tri county area to host one farm every other year, like I said, we do it every four years. Um, and, and get together and do it and have the breakfast on the farm, come up with the title for it, wear tomatoes to tables. Um, and yeah, it's a great thing. Get with your Farm Bureau, get them behind you, encourage them to help get it done. Thank you so much for your time. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, some plant-based companies have started calling their food eggs. Senators want to make sure any food products labeled as eggs come from a bird. Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst and Pennsylvania Democrat Senator John Fetterman introduced the Consistent Egg Labels Act, which aims to do that with nationwide enforcement. To kind of push back against these non-egg, vegan, or plant-based products that are calling themselves eggs. Iowa is the top egg-producing state in the nation, and Ernst claims the Food and Drug Administration failed to take action against what she calls deceptive labeling claims undermining farmers. What we want to do is create clear guidelines for the FDA to ensure that any product labeled as an egg is actually coming from poultry. The North Central Poultry Association praises the bill, saying alternatives do not match in nutrition, functionality, and taste. Ernst says transparency is needed. So we were trying to look it up and see what actually goes into these non-egg egg alternatives and what I think it was like mung beans and all kinds of other stuff. That certainly is not an egg. So John Fetterman and I are stepping up and we're saying, you know what, if an egg's an egg, let's call it an egg. And if you're not an egg, you're not going to be called an egg. In other livestock news, dairy saw an exciting turn in the last year. Fluid milk moved in the right direction during 2023, surpassing its plant-based competitors. Final numbers confirm that consumers turned away from plant-based beverages at an accelerating rate in 2023, causing milk to take market share back from that category. Whole milk and lactose-free options are making plant-based milk alternatives look about as attractive as an old dried-off Holstein. As consumers turn back from plant juices to real-deal milk, a door could be open for more stringent labeling integrity in this market segment. Grocery store spending data from Circana Incorporated shows plant-based beverage consumption has fallen 33% since its peak in 2021, experiencing a 6.6% drop in 2023. The largest plant-based category, almond drinks, fell 10% in 2023. Soy beverages followed with an 8% decline. Retail volumes of plant-based milk alternatives totaled 337.7 million gallons in 2023. Though real milk keeps chugging away, it's important to note its sales volume did drop by 2.7% in the last year. Even with the decline, milk volume totaled 3.137 billion gallons in sales. Though as mentioned, milk saw a slight decline, the drop in sales volume experienced by plant-based milk alternatives still allowed real milk to rise from 89.9% of the market segment in 2022 to 90.3% in 2023. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report. But first, we've got a Brian German with today's Agnet West headlines. A failed field test has revealed a significant discovery about Asian citrus psyllid. Research indicates that the Silas bacteria that causes Wong-Long Bing disease in citrus can disrupt the insect's sense of smell, rendering certain insect traps ineffective. Male ACP use their sense of smell to locate females, and one control strategy for the pest has been the use of baited traps using acetic acid. Field tests of those types of traps in California have shown promising results. However, research in Brazil, where HLB is present, were less successful when using the same types of traps. The study found that the psyllids infected with Silas and Wolbachia bacteria in Brazilian groves showed reduced responsiveness to the acetic acid. The findings suggest that the presence of pathogens can affect the insect's response to attractants, opening new avenues for research in controlling the spread of HLB. The Honeybee Health Coalition has released a comprehensive honeybee nutrition guide offering beekeepers a valuable resource for supplemental feeding in beehives. Recognizing the intricate nature of honeybee nutrition within colonies, the guide provides practical insights to navigate seasonal variations and colony requirements effectively. The guide addresses the complexity of honeybee nutrition, considering landscape, time of year, and beekeeping objectives. It emphasizes the changing nutritional needs of bees through life stages and serves as a roadmap for beekeepers to keep colonies' nutritional requirements, particularly during foraging worker stages. The guide also explores the historical context of supplementing colonies with diets other than pollen and interviews commercial beekeepers to share successful supplemental feeding practices. The guide is available at honeybeehealthcoalition.org slash nutrition guide. The National Association of State Departments of Agriculture has identified several key policy priorities for 2024. First and foremost, NASDA urges Congress to expedite the passage of a unified 2024 farm bill. In the realm of food safety, NASDA advocates for funding state Food Safety Modernization Act programs to safeguard the food supply and provide farmers with the necessary information for compliance. Labor reform takes center stage as NASDA calls for a legal, reliable guest worker program, particularly highlighting the need for reforms to the H-2A program to ensure a stable workforce for farmers while addressing food price challenges. In addressing pesticide regulation, NASDA emphasizes its role as a co-regulatory partner with the EPA and stresses the importance of developing an Endangered Species Act compliance strategy that's practical for pesticide users. The Conservation Stewardship Program from USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service can provide significant support for producers. Assistant State Conservationist with NRCS, Brandon Bates, described examples of how CSP can help California ranchers. If you're a rancher in range country, and of course, fencing is very important, but if you're in an area where you have a lot of wildlife, instead of using the top and the bottom wire as barb, uh, you may look at it doing a smooth wire, which we call a wildlife-friendly fencing that makes sure that animals that are able to jump over and go under without being, you know, scratched or stabbed from the barb. So it can address resource concerns, but ideally it's first off recognizing you being a good steward of the land and what you're doing, but also how can we take that to the next step through what we call enhancements that take you to that next level. The Almond Alliance of California will be hosting regional listening sessions to discuss and prioritize membership policy and regulatory concerns for 2024. The first listening session is scheduled for Wednesday, February 7th, beginning at 8.30 in the morning. It will be taking place at Cortez Grower Association in Turlock. 
The second session will begin later that day at 1.30 in the afternoon in the Belmont Room at Harris Ranch in Colinga. The third listening session scheduled for Thursday, February 8th at JSS Almonds in Bakersfield beginning at 8.30 in the morning. The final session in the series will be taking place at 11.30 in the morning at Grisella's Restaurant in Williams on Friday, February 9th. Industry members are being encouraged to participate in the sessions to voice concerns and help better inform the Alliance about current industry needs. More information about the listening sessions is available at almondalliance.org events. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian. Shielding agriculture from cyber attacks. That's coming up on this land of ours. Two senators introduced legislation intended to boost the agricultural industry's resilience against cyber attacks. The bipartisan measure from Republican Tom Cotton of Arkansas and Democrat Kirsten Gillibrand of New York is backed by a number of agriculture groups. If passed, the bill would shield America's supply chain from technological attacks. Cotton says America's adversaries are looking for any advantage they can use against us, including targeting critical industries like agriculture. The bill would require the USDA to conduct a twice-yearly study on cybersecurity threats to the agriculture industry. Courthouse News Service says the review would include analyzing existing threats, the potential impacts of cyber attacks on the safety and availability of food products, and the government's ability to respond to an attack. USDA would also have to conduct an interagency cross-sector crisis simulation exercise that mocks up a food-related national emergency. This is the Agonet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back. Severe colds can be dangerous for people and for their pets. Here's Gary Crawford. Anyone who knows me also knows I hate cold winter weather, and especially songs that romanticize it, you know, like this one. I've got my love to keep me warm. Or maybe he should sing, I've got my dogs to keep me warm. But actually, with the severe cold waves that we've had across the country recently, maybe I should flip that around again and say we need to keep our dogs warm. Just like cold can be dangerous for us, it absolutely can be for them too, even the winter-hardy breeds. That's Dr. Dawn Fitzhugh. She's a U.S. Department of Agriculture veterinarian. She says many people think dogs are not very sensitive to cold conditions. (laughs) Wrong. They are absolutely susceptible to the cold. Especially when combined with wind and snow and ice. Don says you hear about people getting frostbite, but animals also can suffer from it, even though you'd think that could not happen. So even the furriest of animals, that that wind comes along and it can separate their hair and get right down down to their skin and make them feel super chilled. And so the wind chill can be dangerous for them, just like it is for us. And where on the animal is frostbite most likely to show up? Dogs and cats. With their, the tips of their ears, that's a really vulnerable area for them. So what happens is as they get cold is like their veins constrict. And so it decreases blood flow to tips of body parts. So think about like us and how the tips of your fingers get really cold and painful. It happens like that to them with their ears. And so, and like tips of tails, tips of toes, things like that can be really vulnerable to the cold. Now, here's another problem that can crop up when we take dogs out for walks in icy conditions. They have fur between their paw pads, and so some of them can get ice chunked up in there, and that can be really painful for them. So if you're outside walking with your dog and suddenly, you know, your dog looks like, I I don't really want to go because things are hurting me, 
it's really worth picking up their paws and taking a look in there and seeing what's going on because it's absolutely possible they might have some icy chunks going on in there. Or a reluctance to walk or move may also indicate that the dog is just too cold, maybe even suffering from the first signs of hypothermia, especially if the dog is shivering. That would be a sign for sure of like, hmm, I probably need to get them inside and and get them warmer. But Fitzhugh says warm them gradually. Don't put them suddenly in front of a heater. That would be too big a shock for the dog. So in general, Dr. Fitzhugh says keep an eye on your pet for any unusual behavior in this weather. Try to limit the amount of time spent out in that cold. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. What does USDA's latest World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimate reveal regarding wheat production and exports for both Russia and Ukraine? Rod Bain looks into it. The Black Sea region, the focal point of USDA's January World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimate for wheat. World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekanowski starts with... New data out of Russia. This is official reporting from Russia, their Rostat agency. It's the semi-final numbers, not the absolute final numbers. Those will be released in March. Russia's Federal State Statistics Service indicates for the 2023-24 marketing year. It's showing higher production in Russia. So we raised our Russian production forecast by a million tons, currently at 91 million tons. That's still down one million year over year, down a million from last year, but nevertheless a very big crop. Also of significance, the World Board also raised Ukraine's production forecast by 900,000 tons. Chekhanowski explains that the Ukrainian production numbers have included wheat production in the Russian-occupied area of Crimea. One little data work with all of that is when Rostat reports their production estimate for Russia, they include Crimea because they believe that Crimea is part of Russia. But in our production forecasts, we take Crimea out of the Russian estimates and return it back to Ukraine. Part of the long-term conflict within Ukraine and Russia's occupation of parts of that nation has been the ability to ship wheat and other commodities from Black Sea ports to both export customers and nations in need of food aid. What the January WASDE reveals regarding wheat trade from that region is... Russia wheat exports now up to 51 million tons. Ukraine was increased to 14 million. While that number for Ukraine wheat exports is lower than last year, it is noted in the WASDE that European Union wheat consumption is increased based on the larger projected imports from Ukraine. Adding further analysis on Black Sea wheat exports is USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer. In the case of Russia, maybe revisions up of that crop a little bit. In the case of Ukraine, maybe it's the function of those corridors and solidarity lanes, which are functioning better than maybe we would have anticipated as well. So seeing some exports rise out of the Ukraine as well, too, for things like corn, wheat, and other commodities. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Now is a good time to evaluate your farm building needs. Here's Michael Clements. The start of a new year is a good time to assess your farm building needs, according to Dennis Lee, farm product line manager for Morton Buildings. We encourage farm operations to evaluate their building needs, the buildings they currently have, and their operation. 
We want to consider if buildings need to be added to, remodeled, or replaced. Equipment's getting larger. Many operations are getting larger and more complex. In some cases, older structures are going to be too small. We also want to take a good look at the building's efficiency. You know, a lot of the farm shops that we're seeing nowadays are conditioned and we want to make sure that those buildings are operating efficiently. Lee says there are a lot of factors that will determine the best building solution. Equipment not only nowadays is getting wider, but it's also getting taller. And height is just not something that can be added to an older building. If your equipment is too tall for your existing building, you're going to want to look at going to a new building. We can generally expand door widths in a retrofit, but that's something that you'll have to take a look at if it's possible. And there's also the depreciation factors. Many of your older buildings will likely be fully depreciated. So you want to consult with a tax advisor and see if there's some tax advantages to building a new building. Lee also recommends considering the possible addition of farm personnel to support growth. We're often looking at family members coming back to expand the farm. If that's not an option, a lot of times we're hiring additional personnel. We also see expansion in farm operations. There's a great trend in own farm sales now, so you want to evaluate your operation and, and is it suitable to be bringing people onto the farm. And you want to make sure that you've got a successful infrastructure strategy. That means evaluating what has worked worked and what hasn't worked to address your building needs. To learn more, including how to save now through February on new buildings during Morton's Building Value Days event, visit mortonbuildings.com. Michael Clements reporting. This is the AgNet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. For today's featured interview, we go back to the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention which was held this year in Salt Lake City, Utah, and that's where I had the opportunity to talk with all kinds of farmers from around the nation, like this one. I'm John Harrell. I'm from southwest Georgia. And you are a peanut farmer out there? Yes, I am. So tell me, as a peanut farmer here at AFBF, what are some of the key issues on your mind? Well, our cost of production is what's killing us on the farm, and mainly energy costs because everything derives from it. So have you seen those, those energy costs go up quite a bit recently? Well, I can't say they've gone up, but they haven't really gone down. And yet our price we're getting for our products has not kept pace with that. Is there anything that you can see to help give you some relief? Well, we just need Farm Bureau to keep fighting for us in Washington because that's where we're working on a farm bill which has been delayed and we need a increase in our reference prices to keep up with us our safety net because we do not have one right now so what would you what kind of an increase would you like to see well we'd like to see all we could get but um on corn and cotton and peanuts we would like to see you know a significant increase at least that puts us in where we are now with the cost and we haven't had an increase in, since the 2002 Farm Bill. That was the next thing I was going to ask, was when, when was the last time that you saw an increase? And that's been 20-some years. Yes, yes. And we all know what just the last two to three years have done to us inflation-wise. Um, but on the farm, we're being hit by cost of production, labor. I mean, it's everything because everything is up. And we have no control over what we get for our commodities. Whereas 
most businesses would say, well, you know, this is our cost have gone up and this is what we need to market up, but we don't have that ability on the farm. Do you think that, that consumers are starting to understand that or, or, or is there still a lack of understanding that farmers don't get to set prices? I think some consumers do, but a lot don't. And, and I don't know how we break through. Um, if you're in a big city, you don't own an automobile, and the gas prices probably haven't affected you. Um, if you're, you know, just eat out most of the time, the grocery store hadn't really affected you. Um, so it, it's hard to get that across, especially if you're making a good salary. Now, if you're not, you know the cost has, has hit you hard. And it all starts from the dirt. I mean, that's, <laughs> and when we have a bad year, it's, it's even compounded because unless we can make a good yield, we really in the hole. And we just don't seem to be getting any help from Washington, so I don't know what we're gonna do. Um, I heard a, something that I was growing up about farming up your equity. And I didn't understand what that meant, but I do now. And I think most farmers would agree to that. They're, they're farming up in their equity, trying to, you know, have that good year to make up for it. But I don't know. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Farm Bureau. What does it mean for you to be a Farm Bureau member? Well, I'm involved in my local Farm Bureau. I'm vice president. I'm involved with my state Farm Bureau because I'm the on the peanut commodity committee and I'm its chairman. So peanuts are a passion for me. I'm on the Georgia Peanut Commission. So we promote peanuts. We do education in, in Washington and, and so does Farm Bureau. And we try to be on the same page and wh whether it's in the state of Georgia or in Washington and we are, which is, I'm very thankful for that because we haven't always been with Farm Bureau, but we are now and probably Zippy Duvall has a lot to do with that. <laughs> I would think so with him and himself being from Georgia, right? Yes, yes, wonderful. We're so proud of him. Yeah. For a commodity like peanuts, do you see an importance of making sure that it is represented in an organization like AFBF? Yes, um, I guess a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is probably the most popular sandwich in the world and so most people love peanuts and peanut butter. So, you know, we, we don't have to promote it a lot of times to people that love it, but we need to, every generation needs to know because if their parents haven't fed them peanuts or peanut butter, then they don't know. And then as they start their families, you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich most nutritious thing you can give a child uh, or an adult. <laughs> Do you still eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? I eat peanut butter every morning on a piece of wheat toast, half, you know, just a slice of wheat toast, toast it lightly, dab that crunchy peanut butter. I'm a crunchy. My wife is a smooth. And, um, I mean, I don't never get tired of it. We're the opposite in my household. I'm a crunchy peanut butter person and my husband is a smooth peanut butter person. Yeah, and you either, you one way or the other. And it's, but, you know, peanuts, oh, as we've, I've, I've traveled around the United States over the years, I've been on the National Peanut Board and all that. 
everybody would say, well, you know, do you know Jimmy Carter? And President Carter was one of our biggest promoters of peanuts because everybody associates peanuts with President Carter. And uh, so it's easy to promote peanuts. And peanuts are, I think, in about 95% of the households in the United States. I mean, we're a sort of a saturated market, but you always got to promote peanuts because every generation can change. Needs that reminder. That's right, that's right. Um, and like you say, as, as these young people and older people too, it, 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 the further they're removed from the farm, they don't have an aunt, uncle, they don't have a grandparent, a grandmother, or you know, way back that were, was a farmer, you sort of forget about where all this food comes from. And uh, I think during COVID, a lot of people realized that, you know, farmers were vital. I mean, if we quit working, <laughs> you know, we'd starve. And so um, we were appreciative of that, but our costs have just gone through the roof and it, it's just hard to make a living. And in a lot of areas, there's encroachment from urban and different things that they offer you so much for your land you you wonder if it's you know you can't farm it out of it and so there, there's a lot of transition going on in the farming world but yet there's more people every day being born into this world that's going to eat if they can three times a day and um we're fortunate for that that we've got a food supply that can do it one of the places where this interview is going to air is in California. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you would like the people out in California who maybe are not farmers and have never had a chance to, to meet a farmer, um, especially not a peanut farmer, what would you like them to know? Well, we grow peanuts in a rotation, uh, preferably every three years, because you can't grow peanuts behind peanuts. So any peanut farmer is also a corn or cotton or some other farmer. I grow a lot more cotton than I do peanuts, but peanuts is my favorite crop and because I can't eat that cotton. I can't, I can't make thread and make material out of it, but I can pull up some peanuts and I can parch them, I can boil them, I can do a lot of things with them on the farm. and. But most of our peanuts in the area we grow go to peanut butter and candy peanuts. That, you know, the whole peanuts on the on like a Snickers bar or something like that. Uh, we're in an area where it's a long growing season, so the peanuts are fully matured and you know full enhancement of the flavor when they're roasted. But we're we try to, you know, follow all the best practices of farming practices. We go by the university recommendations. And we think about that consumer because we are also consumers. And we love peanut butter and we love peanut products. And so we're not going to do anything that's harmful. And uh, we want to preserve that land for the next generation. So, you know, the sustainability everybody talks about we're sustainable, but we also, part of that sustainability is to make a living on the farm. You can't be sustainable unless you make a profit. And that's what we really need people to understand, that farmers have to make a profit to keep farming. Because our costs have not gone down and equipment costs and 
all they got to do is think about what a pickup truck costs now. And in most areas, that was more than people bought houses for not very many years ago. And you're buying a pickup truck. <laughs> so, um, but we're people. We're human beings, and we love the land. We, I mean, we wouldn't be farmers if we didn't love the land. And so that's the message I'd like to get out. Thank you for your time today, and thank you for being here at the AFDF convention. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now to wrap up the show, many family farms are considering innovative technologies and approaches for their operations in the context of keeping family members on the farm. Rod Bain has more. The producer's approach to farm operation and succession planning is moving away from the concept of a family farm and more towards a family business. That, according to the University of Missouri, Scott Brown, who adds this is due in part to realization that technological investment and diversification is needed. When the family members come back, they're looking at different forms of agriculture to be their part. It's all about risk diversification. When you look at just how volatile markets have been, technology plays a key role in that. Today, you cannot avoid too long investing in new technology because there's returns to that technology. Diversification, according to Iowa State University's Chad Hart, includes a greater effort towards direct marketing to consumers, such as two Indiana sisters carving their niche on a family farm. Doing it in a way where it's wide open in terms of the conversations they have. No idea is off the table. Mom and dad are wide open to those kinds of conversations. They're both okay. heavily involved. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgNetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgNetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the AgNet NewsHour from AgNetWest. AgNetWest Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.